The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. In the next hour, you'll hear from some phenomenal people and healthcare leaders and learn how their challenges became opportunities. Our goal is to show you how you can positively influence your own life experience and purpose and achieve success. And now, here is your host, Danielle Delaney. Hi, this is Danielle Delaney, and this is The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. Welcome. Today, I am talking to Darren Stein. He is an American film director, screenwriter, and film producer who grew up in the San Fernando Valley. His works include the documentary Put the Camera on Me and the satirical major motion picture Jawbreaker, which was deemed a cult classic by the New York Post and is still referenced today in mainstream sources. His other films include Sparkler, Put the Camera on Me, which I mentioned, Wild Tigers I Have Known, Color Me Olsen, and most recently, his movie, J, uh, GBF, pardon me, GBF. And I'm delighted to have you today, Darren. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I'm so glad. I'm just so glad that we get to do this. Um, for listeners, I just wanted you to know that I'm fortunate enough that Darren is also a childhood friend of mine. So I'm really, really just honored to have you. So why don't you tell me a little bit about what you're working on now and what's next for you? Well, next for me, um, I'm working on a musical of Jawbreaker, um, which is uh, uh, for the stage. You know, I wrote and directed that film back in 1999, and it seems to yeah. have, like, sustained over the years. Um, so we're working on a production. I have a composer and lyricist out of New York, and I've, I've written the book, or the libretto. And um, we're currently talking to a producer, um, and producers in Seattle and Los Angeles about mounting the first production. Amazing. When did this happen? Like, how did it come up that, that it became a musical? I mean, I know it's actually, been, it's actually been several years in the making. I want to say it's been probably five to seven years in the making. I got a call from a, a producer's assistant in New York, and he said, hey, have you ever thought about making this as a musical? And I was like, oh, well, I think it would be a great musical. And the next thing I know, he was introducing me to composers and lyricists. Um, and then I, I sort of bonded with Jeff Thompson and Jordan Mann, who are a composer and lyricist team out of New York. And they flew to L.A., and we sat in my house, and we sort of, like, broke down the show and where the songs would go and, you know, sort of reimagined it as a musical to the stage. Unbelievable. It sounds like it came out of nowhere. Had you ever, con- like, have you conceived of that when you started making the movie? Did you look at it and think this could be a musical? I actually did. When I was writing it, you know, it's, it's kind of hyper real. It's very like colorful and kind of art. Yeah. The tone is very over the top. And so there's actually a segment in this film. It's like a dream sequence where Liz Purr is being sort of embalmed at the funeral home. And then as Fern May was being made over into Violet and says popular girl. <laughs> and I always thought that felt like a musical sequence, you know, even though it was just sort of like, I don't know, rhyming dialogue. Right. So it's really right. taking the tone of the film to the next level. Um, and um, we're talking about doing more of a, 
a club experience, like an experiential, I don't know, theatrical experience, rather than just sitting in a theater and watching something on a stage. I love it. It's so creative. I mean, Jawbreaker is my personal favorite of all of your movies. It just mm-hmm. is. I guess it's my, kind of my 80s baby thing. You know, I've just always enjoyed the 80s so much, and it's just like a pop culture dream to me. I love when you said it's a dream sequence sort of scene, because it is yeah. a dream to me. You know, the great thing about film, well, first of all, it's a 90s film, but 90s and 80s definitely get blurred for me. Um, <laughs> it, it's, um, it's kind of great, because I think when you make a team film, you know, if, it, if you make a good one, they sort of go on to stand the test of time, because every year there's a new batch of people going through adolescence, and they discover these movies. Right. So the movies, it's kind of like a time yeah. capsule to me. Your movies are like time capsules, so... Yeah, forgive me, it is a 90s movie, but to me, it reminds me of the 80s, because my high school years were the 80s. I graduated in 86, exactly. and that hallway sequence is real. I mean, I know those three girls. It just, it just feels genuine. Was that based on anyone in your life, or was it based, what, what movies inspired this? Well, the movie, that, I mean, the movie that definitely inspired it was Heathers. You know, Heathers was, that was definitely a big Oh, film, Heathers. Big for me. And that right. was sort of the 80s the 80s version of Jawbreaker, you know, there is sort of a Mean Girl continuum. I think it starts with Heathers and then it goes to Jawbreaker and then Mean Girls. Um, you know, they're just sort of considered the three, you know, the generational Mean Girl movies, yes. you know? Yes. Um, I didn't even think of from, Heathers. I love that. Yeah. But for me, you know, I went to an all-boys school, so I was always intrigued by the co-ed experience and the girls that I didn't get to experience high school with. And so I was able to, you know, write about the fantasy of what I thought it could be, you know, since I didn't live it myself, I was, I was just in a very academic, all boy, very academically oriented, you know, educational space, you know, so it was like right. sports and in class, you know, all, all I did in high school was study. I didn't really have a life. Oh, that's terrible. Well, at least you're living it up now. Yeah, no, that's why, you know, I mean, I was making little movies on my cul-de-sac in Encino, you know, from when I was probably, I don't know, 10 to the age of 16. And so I think I, you know, because I had a group of kids on the street that I could play with, I just didn't need to, you know, I I had a place where I, you know, fit in and belong and where I could sort of express myself creatively, you know, on the cul-de-sac. I love it. I love that because I knew you as a kid and I'm only a few years older. I had no business babysitting you ever, <laughs> but that was back in the day when they did like that. And my brother was one of those kids. Tell me a little bit about what inspired you when you were little. I mean, you were nine or 10 and you did put the camera on me. And I love watching that today on YouTube. Put the camera on yeah. me. It's so amazing that you were a kid. How did you, how did you even start making films as a child like that? How did you do that? Well, my, I think I was always, I was always really theatrical and really into theater and movies, um, they were definite, you know, touchstones for me. I was just, I always was the pour over the calendar section of the paper and look forward to going to Westwood or Hollywood and seeing the newest films in the big theater houses, you know, in L.A. Mm-hmm. And my, my dad, his parents started a film lab in the 60s where they, they would actually process, process motion picture film for, movie, you know, independent movies, and they got into post-production in the 80s. And I, I was around, so I sort of, I was around all that technology, and I knew that film was a, technical uh, medium, you know, that was, it, it just made the whole thing right. more accessible to me. So at the dawn of video, my dad got, a, he brought home a video camera. It was one of the very first video cameras that was, you know, made for the public. And he said, wow. you know, don't touch this. This is daddy's toy. It's not for kids. <laughs> <laughs> so and you did he the, made the first. Opposite. Yeah. 
Well, he, the, my, my very first movies were, you know, I actually have their input the camera on me. It was my dad filming and me sort of bossing him around, telling him what, who to film and how to do it, you know? Um, yeah. And then eventually I got my hands on the camera and started bossing everyone around myself. <laughs> you did start bossing everyone around yourself. How did you have that kind of confidence as a kid going to a boys' school? Did you, did you experience any bullying or what, how did you just kind of contain everyone? Those are little kids. They're, they were mostly younger than you. Like Alan is your age, my brother. Is he about yeah. your age? Most of the younger. kids were, I would say, three, three or more years younger than me. Three most, years most younger, right. So how did you corral everybody and get them to sort of be on the same stage you were as you were directing your debut at 10 years old? How did you get everyone to do that? How did you lead? Well, I think I was so, well, first of all, I was so dissatisfied with my own experience at school. You know, I didn't have much to socialize, and I'm a very social person. You know, I think there's people, mm-hmm. you know, some people need people more than others in this lifetime, you know, and I, I love people. And so I think that I just was desperate for, you know, attention and and for camaraderie and friendship, you know, that I wasn't getting in high school. And, you know, for popularity, for lack of a better word, for being, you know, embraced. You know, I felt the need, I think Mm -hmm. I had the need to be, um, I don't know, uh, make everyone laugh and and tell stories and just kind of like, you know, weave weave fantasies, you know? Um, So it was kind of an internal fantasy world that you were externalizing in film? Would that that be accurate? Well, you know, Amazing. Kids, most kids just play sports or they, you know, they do what their parents tell them to do. They have, you know, they, they, they do more sort of what's expected as far as like after school activities or, or what have you. And I just mm-hmm. had this camera and I think it was exciting for, exciting, you know, for, for kids to think that they could be telling stories, not on paper, not you know, with puppets, but with, you know, actual movies, you know, our own little movies. And often the films I made would emulate films that I saw in theaters. So it was a way to like, you know, make make storytelling accessible to the other kids, you know? What kind of movies did you emulate? Which movies really inspired you, even when you were that young? Um, it was always stuff like horror, you know, horror, zombie or horror movies. You know, there was mm-hmm. a whole rash of, like, Vietnam-type movies. I remember seeing, like, Rambo and Platoon. And then there was, like, ninja movies that came out. Um, it's like any film I saw, I would sort of emulate. Um, and then there, I was also, you know, struggling with my sexuality, not struggling, but, you know, I knew I was different when I was that age. And so I... I you did know? You knew it that young? You knew that you were gay when you were 10 years old? Oh, yeah. I think I, think I knew since I was, like, 7 or 8 years old. You know, I think I've known my whole... You know, I think kids, you know, usually you sort of know. I mean, not everyone mm-hmm. does, but I, I think some children are more in touch with their sexuality than others. Um, and so I made this one film called Gay as a Whistle. Um, you know, because I, I had this thing called the Z Channel, which was one of the early, very early cable stations. Yeah. Um, and they showed movies that, you know, it was sort of like having a film festival in your house. This is before there was even video, you know, like in the, in the early 80s. Right. And so I think I was exposed to some gay movies, and I made this film called Gay as a Whistle. My parents also had a very dear friend who was gay, so I, I knew gay people. I mean, they weren't just, you know. So, um, but you did have some gay people around you growing up. I did. And, and I was very obsessed with the Rocky Horror Picture Show, so I, I was always drawn to, like, I don't know. Other otherness, you know, something and, other than than what people consider the norm. Exactly. Interesting. Like, and Curry in Rocky Horror was like my hero because he was glamorous and he was sort of like, you know, dressing women's clothes and he was like powerful and he was like there was like a sadomasochistic side of him and he, and he was right. an alien. Like he was like everything that could be you know considered other. This character was you know so this, he was so everything movie, other. You're absolutely right. Otherworldly. 
Exactly. So the movie held so much fascination for me, and of course I wasn't allowed to see it because it only showed at midnight. And so I remember this one kid on the street, his name was Jordan Cole, and he, mm-hmm. his parents got a bootleg Beta, Betamax tape of Rocky Horror that I think someone taped off the midnight show. Betamax, I, I love it. Going to Jordan's and watching it, and you know, my life was changed forever. Changed your life forever. I remember Alan always, my brother as well, who was your friend, walking around singing the songs from Rocky Horror. So I would imagine it was inspiring for a lot of young gay boys who, who didn't have any yeah, Rocky Horror, with, and so they saw that. Yeah, I think someone is different. I think Rocky Horror is inspiring for anyone who feels different, whether it's sexually or gender-wise or mm-hmm. outrageousness or like some kind of ultra-sexual proclivity or you know decadence, anything, you know, drugs, rock, rock and roll music. Absolutely. It's it's just hmm? kind of a dream of things that we haven't experienced and that young. I can imagine yeah, it's quite, the an, theme, the it's theme quite of, an impression. The, the theme of the movie is literally don't dream it, be it. I like that. Don't dream it, be it. That's a wonderful mm-hmm. takeaway from, from that. Now, would you uh-huh. tell me a little bit about when you came out? Did you come out to your parents and friends with like a formal thing or did you sort of the sort of ease into it and everybody knew? I just don't have an understanding of what that is. And a lot of people in America are yeah. not out yet. Gay people everywhere. Yeah, that are no, out I came yet. out officially when I was a sophomore in college. I went to NYU, so I, was, I was probably like 19, I think. And I went to NYU, so coming from Encino, which was sort of sheltered to, to mm-hmm. New York, you know, I just definitely felt a lot, I could really sort of be who I was a lot more, you know? So you and um, so did you go home think, and talk to your parents or what did you do? How did how did that transpire? Yeah, well, I, I think I came home. I came home every you know for like Christmas break and then like for Easter break and I just kept, was coming home looking weirder and weirder. My mom knew something was going on, and finally I just said I, I sat them down and I told them I said I'm gay, you know. And my mom and fully freaked out. And my, my dad was cool with it because he had a sister who and she had a gay son, so he had been through the whole thing before. Mm-hmm. But my mom, you know, she, you know, I think mothers often have a whole, like, plan for their children, you know, for, especially their boys, and to get married, to have children. You know, you know, I think children are sort of an extension of our of our parents, our, you know, lives. Right, right. And so, and they have to come out, when you come out to them, they have to ultimately come out to their friends about their child, you know? That's true. I haven't ever thought of it that way. Uh-huh. I really haven't so thought of it that way. Yeah, and, you know, my mom was always into image and, like, you know, she wanted me to go to the best schools and have the best career. Like, I remember they they wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer, and I remember thinking, well, no, I want to make movies. I don't want to do those things, you know? Right. Right. And I have the same experience. I mean, I'm not a gay man, obviously. I'm fortunate enough to have a brother who is, but I'm not. And my experience, same thing. They want a doctor. They want a lawyer. They want grandchildren and marriage. And those are all things that mm-hmm. you can still have, obviously, now and today. Mm-hmm. But it's... uh. It's an experience, I would imagine, that is shaking the family up a little bit there. And I know with my family, it was, uh, it was a little bit of something there. But my parents were very accepting, and it's, your parents are very accepting now. And it's just not that way everywhere across the country and all over the world. So it's, no. it's an interesting yeah, it's, thing to share with people because some people have no frame of reference for that or no personal understanding of even what that is like. And I think that's where fear mm-hmm. comes from. It's a disconnected fear. Mm-hmm that is just of something that they don't understand. It's a misplaced fear. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, because I think it's really interesting for people to think about what that is like, whether it's your child or your, your friend or your parents 
when people come out that there is a complete shedding of the skin of becoming this other person that you will always were and that you get to share that. And I think it's just well, yeah, like, 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 be like, who they like are. Yeah, it's sort of like a different ethnicity. They never have to come out because they're always that color. People, you know, they've always, people can look at them and see. When you're gay, usually you have to come out. I mean, some people are more flamboyant than others, and, you know, greed is more gay. But when you're right. gay in the world of a gay, you're, you know, you're sort of going through this world that's not designed for you. You're looking at billboards of men and women, and, you know, it's a heterosexual world. So it's definitely, you know, a lot that's true. Of you have to sort of release. That's entirely true. I mean, there's publications mm-hmm. and movies and things now, but there certainly weren't back then. And no. that's the thing. I read an interview of you in Chicago Pride, a piece about you that was very cleverly titled Truth or Darren, which, of course, I loved. Any reference to Madonna. <laughs> love it. Love it. And, uh, and in that movie, where they, they, they were interviewing you about uh, your film GBF. And if you could talk right. a little bit about what GBF stands for. I know. I live in L.A., but not everyone does. And yeah. what that means to you, GBF? GBF means gay best friend. And mm-hmm. basically it's a moniker or an acronym for, you know, a very close friendship that can form between, you know, a, a woman and a gay man. You know, usually, usually a heterosexual woman and a gay man. It doesn't really matter, though. But, you know, mm-hmm. I have a, my best friend is female. We've been friends for over 25 years, and I'm her, she calls me her GBF, you know, so... It's a really nice relationship. It's very intimate, and you know, it's you know, because men can you know, under gay men understand women and can be sensitive to their needs without wanting them sexually. So, it just makes for a really lovely friendship. And and, and gay men are competitive with their female friends, like mm-hmm. you know, like her other friends might be. Um, so yeah, but this what this movie did is it took that trope and it brought it to high school. You know where. You know, these girls realize it's in vogue, that's in fashion to have a GBF, and they, they go about right, finding a, a gay kid at their school where they can... That. Right. Uh, the, the, having a GBF was sort of a trend, and it was one of those things in these in the year that you made it, when was this, 2013, right? So just a few mm-hmm. years ago, I started hearing the term GBF more, and more so after your movie. So it's kind of a trailblazing thing that's been a trend going on. And at some point, I'd imagine it's just your friend, just like I'm not your black friend. At some point, you're just my friend. And the yeah, the movie's, is- the, the movie's about, you know, shedding labels. You know, like, there's a girl, and they call her, like, she's like, you know, uh, this one Christian girl, you know, mistakenly thinks it's in vogue. You know, she doesn't understand that it's not about possessing someone. She's like, oh, you could be my sassy black friend. You're my SBS. You know, and it's, no, it's not about having a sassy black friend. It's about having a friend. It's not about having a gay best friend. It's about having a friend who happens to be gay. Um, and, and and that's a bigger metaphor for going about, you know, for that navigating the world as an adult. You know, you don't want to get gay married. You want to get married. You know, you exactly. just want to be a person. Exactly. And that's something I want to talk about a little bit later, too. And you spoke of giving a wink and a nod in your GBF film, in the, in the film GBF to your jawbreaker characters. And I'd love you to kind of tell me a little bit more about that since I'm so fascinated on jawbreaker. It's kind of my technicolor dream come true. When yeah. I watch well, it's that. funny because, you know, jawbreaker, a big part of, I think, I think a big part of the allure of jawbreaker is that slow motion walk seen down the hallway that the popular girls do. Um, it yes. like sort of captured, capture people's imaginations. And in GBS, that slow motion walk motif is used. So it was interesting because I didn't write GBF, but the writer was clearly influenced by Jawbreaker because he sort of, you know, GBF is really fun because he uses a lot of other teen movie tropes in its language or in its storytelling, both visually and, you know, dialogue-wise. But the great thing about GBF is that it reinvents the slow motion walk because in GBF, 
the three click queens are not in the same click. They they all have their own sort of domain domain to the school. You know, mm-hmm. like the, it was the African American girl. She's like in charge of the drama kids, and like um, Ashley, who goes by Schlee, she's in charge of like sort of the Christian kids. And then Fawcett, you know, she's like you know the the, the blonde bitch girls, whatever. But the blonde the bomb. Them, mm-hmm. So the, so the, so the film opens up with these three girls walking in slow motion. In, in separate hallways with their cliques behind them. They're sort of flanked by, the, by their cliques. Then they come together and you see them sort of circling around each other like they're all kind of competing for, uh, you know, dominance. And then what is the role of the GBF? If you can explain a little bit about that, how he yeah, they all is integrated into they all that hallway walk. They all fight to have him. They all want the accessory. There's only, they realize there's only one gay kid <laughs> in the school and they're going to fight to make sure he's there. So the three girls sort of like do what they can to get him on their team. And ultimately, you know, they realize that he doesn't want to be pulled in every direction. He's he's a, he's a person. He's not a prize, you know. And, right. He's not a possession. You know, he's a human being. Exactly. And the whole thing, you know, like like any good teen film, the whole thing culminates at the prom, you know, where he gives a big speech at the end about how he's not an accessory. He's a person, and it's pretty moving. Um, because in the process of you know, sort of like being hunted down by these click queens. He be, he loses his sense of self. You know, he they make him over, and he kind of becomes drunk on this attention and and power, and like you know, he gets estranged mm-hmm. from his friends and his best friend, who's another gay guy, who they kind of had a kind of something, some kind of you know, energy together as a as a maybe will they or won't they couple, you know. So it's a fun, it's a really mm-hmm. fun movie, and it's and it's kind of something you can go back and revisit. You know, I love teen movies. Cause I like films that you can just sort of pop in and laugh and enjoy it. You know. And just enjoy it. And it takes you back. Okay, well, we're going to take a break in a minute. And when we come back, we'll be talking some more with Darren Stein. I have some more questions for you about some LGBT issues that I have opinions about. And I'd love to find out what yours are. So we'll be back in just a moment. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. It's time to do all of those things that you always said you'd do in your life. What's stopping you? Is it other people, your environment, fear? What could give you a push? Tune in to Raising the Bar with Amy Bredo. Our show is all about taking risks and turning them into positives and personal gain. We'll help your inner voice speak up and get you out of that comfort zone. Raising the Bar can be heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Do you feel alone trying to conquer life's challenges? Do you feel that there's sometimes nowhere to turn and nobody really understands? Remember, you are not alone. Every week, 
Host April Joy Ford, who has faced adversity as a constant in her life, helps you rise above life's challenges with your own blueprint meant to discover the powerful you. April's challenges have included childhood sexual abuse, becoming a widow and single parent at 32, and other such curveballs. She'll help you get empowered holistically every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are tuned in to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. If you'd like to connect with Danielle, feel free to send an email to therealdealwithdanielle at gmail.com. That's therealdealwithdanielle at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back. This is Danielle Delaney, and this is The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. And I am speaking to someone else who is The Real Deal today. My guest is Darren Stein screenwriter, director, and producer of many, many fascinating projects that I've fallen in love with over the years, and I consider them my technicolor dreams come true when I watch them. So I'm delighted to have you, and I want to continue asking you a few questions, Darren. Um, it, when you wrote GBF, or when you directed and created GBF, you, did you have a co-writer, a screenwriter that worked with you on GBF? The writer is named George Northey. And George Northey, right. Yeah, it was, it was his first screenplay, and he had entered it in the uh, Outfest, the L.A. Um, Gay Lesbian Film Festival, and they have a screenwriting lab. I and love so it. I was, I was paired with a the script there, and I helped get it, get it made. I love that. I love that. And you've, you've been able to really create such characters. Now, we were talking about it being a wink and a nod, some of it, to some Jawbreaker characters. Can you tell me right. a little bit about how some might be similar to some of the girls in Jawbreaker? Because I'm just so fond of that film. And I did love GBF as well. But it, it's like uh, Jawbreaker is my first love and, and GBF is my second. So it can't quite be comparable, comparable for me. But uh, I'd love to know what the parallels are between the characters and one and the other. Well, they both have, you know, they, they both have mean, you know, mean, quote unquote, mean girl clicks, mm-hmm. you know, but. But in Jawbreaker, it's it's basically three girls in the same clique, whereas you know, and there's the hierarchy among them. Whereas in, in GBS, all three girls have their own sort of like domains that they they, that they control, you know. Mm-hmm. So it sort mm-hmm. of brings the clique culture into I don't know a more um, it individualizes it more. It's a world now where you know the world isn't as commodified as it was say in the 80s or 90s, right? You know. So it kind of is a nod to each of them, but as they've grown, as they would. I'm sorry, say that again? As they would have grown up. I'm sorry, as they would have grown into their future, maybe they would have been more of individuals instead of being such a clique. And I like that. I really like that you did that in the new in the newer film. I like that. Yeah, the kids today have access. They they can just Google anything. You know, they can, you know, they, they, they have concerns like, you know, erasing their their search histories on the on their on their computers, so the parents don't see them. You know, right? 
Right. And they're able to do that now. And going back to speaking about coming out and how some people have some secrecy surrounding that. I mean, there are still countries in this world, I think, over 20 countries in this world where you can still be executed, executed, pardon me, just for being gay, you can be executed. And just looking at that, there are some anti-LGBT bills right now that threaten real lives, and they're based on false ideas. And I just kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. And there was a crime in February that just really touched me and struck me personally. It was uh, two men that were sleeping, and someone in their home poured boiling water over them and said, get out of my house with all of that gay. And it just broke my heart you know, to hear that these men are maimed forever because of someone else's disconnected fears and just unfounded right. fears of something different. And it's monstrous to me. And it also was not his house, this man's house, according to everything I've read. And I just wanted to know a little bit about living in... West Hollywood and Hollywood is so different than living in other parts of the country. And I think sometimes we all get a little disconnected from what that's like for the youth of this country to be gay and to come out. And the, the fear attached to that is some real violence. I do some work with the Trevor Project, and I just think it's always so important to, to stress to people that you don't have to be afraid of something that is not your experience. Um, and I just wanted to ask you what your experience is with that, with any any fears that you've ever had of any public displays of affection or anything in a relationship or with, with, and just wondering what happens. I think every gay person, you know, because you grew up in a world that's not designed for you, you know, you're sort of like hypervigilant about your surroundings. Can they tell Mm -hmm. they tell I'm gay? Can they not tell I'm gay? If they can tell I'm gay, will they think I'm a freak? You know, it's like all these things are going through your head. You have this like running, (laughs) dialogue in your head, you know, from the day mm-hmm. you're, you know, you, you know what you are. So it's scary, you know, you, you just have to be vigilant, you know, I I don't feel that comfortable holding hands on the street. I never have. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's just because I think that's my own repressed homophobia that I have, you know, from being raised in a world where I'm trying to please straight people and not, not, not make a spectacle of myself, you know, in this yeah, world. That's, that's very not, interesting. Yeah. That's interesting to me because it goes back to something we said a few minutes back. You were talking about uh, that, you know, if you're a person of color, it's not like you ever have to come out with that. I mean, I'm a person Mm -hmm. of mixed, you know, heritage, so I have to sometimes explain myself a little bit to people, but it's not like anyone's ever going to think I'm not black. So Mm -hmm. it's it's not like they're going to say something offensive in front of me thinking, oh, she's not. Oh, surprise, Danielle is black. It's never a surprise. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that's, that's something that's very real when you speak about that fear and that it is very different from being any other kind of minority or a repressed majority. Either way, it's just that, that undercurrent of fear that can constantly yeah. be there. And I do know that my mother does worry about my brother and his partner when they are in L.A. They live in Europe. And when they're here, she sometimes wants them to tone it down. And I say, you know, they should be who they are. But I do understand that fear. And if something like this were to happen to him, it's just such a tragic thing that some people still think this way. And I like that you are out so that people can have a reference for someone that they know in their life or that they admire who is gay. And unbelievably, that isn't always mainstream. You know, in the Midwest or in the South, you just don't know. So I love that people can hear this anywhere and can also identify with you. Also, violence, you know, yes, L.A. and New York are more accepting, but there's still violence on both coasts towards, you know, LGBT people and the trans community. 
you know? I mean, I That's absolutely talk, true. I mean, I think in LA we feel a little more safe because we're all in our, we're each on our own car every day and we're sort of like going from place to place with our own air conditioning and music and there's not as much human interaction. Whereas in New York, everyone's on that subway together. True. Stuffed in there like, stuffed in there like sardines. And you Absolutely see every, right. You see every walk of life, rich and poor, and every ethnicity, every sexuality, gender variant, and that's true. Know, it's a real difference. And, you, know, you have every opportunity yeah, I mean, to get on each other's nerves. And in, in New York City, it's not the same on our coast, and in other cities, it's different. And it's just, you know, we decided in the '60s that despite other people's beliefs to the contrary, it's unacceptable to teach to treat African Americans as subhuman or second-class citizens. And the Civil Rights Act, and it took, took forever to get that. And for gay people, we've marched for no hate. I marched in that myself, and I felt that it was a, a civil rights issue. You know, that gay marriage isn't gay marriage. It's just marriage and that all humans should right. have the right to marry and then to be miserable and divorce if they so choose. So why can't everyone have that same experience? And I absolutely was 100% on board with, you know, with no hate. And it's, it's just such an interesting thing that you said about people in New York being, you know, just pushed together because of the mass transit. And we don't have that here. We're in our little capsules. You're absolutely right. It's a different lifestyle and a different way of being aware and vigilant around, about what's around you. I can't even imagine thinking that way. Yeah, I think there's pluses, pluses and minuses to each coast. Like in New York, on one hand, it's good when you're all forced together because you're forced to you know, tolerate everything around you. On the other hand, it's scary because if you get a group of, kids, of say, you know, high school boys or like, you know, dudes who don't like gays and they're all in a group and they see a, a gay guy by himself or with his boyfriend, you can get, you know, called names or, you know, there could be violence. You, you don't know, you know? And that's true. It's always a fear of the unknown. I mean, it's similar being a woman that it's just, you know, rape culture and that we are concerned more so than a man walking down the street. I see men walking down the street with headphones on. And I think I could never do that. My, one of my senses would be obliterated. I need to be able to hear what's going on around me and, and as a counselor and as a survivor of, of violent crime and as the sibling of a gay brother, there's just so many things to be aware of. And being in Los Angeles, it's not as prevalent to be concerned with being a person of color or being gay, but so many places, it actually is an issue. And in Los Angeles and New York, it's interesting to hear that, that that still is something that would be a daily fear, that that could be an issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've made strides, cultural strides, but I think that, you know, homophobia is still everywhere. I mean, I don't think it's going to just go away overnight. Right. I mean, as a nation, we believe that bigotry of any ilk is immoral and unjust and unconstitutional and illegal, but people are still bigoted. And it's, it's always a rude awakening, but I just think it's something that always should be addressed and talked about because pushed under the rug until it isn't, you know, until it comes out suddenly. So you exactly. know, it's good to talk about it. It's always good to talk about it. Well, now back to your films. I want to get back to the cheerful things here for a moment. Would you talk <clears throat> a little bit more about, about Sparkler and making Sparkler? I'd love to hear about, about that because I did go to the screening of that. And um, what was the premise for that? How did you come up with that one? That was my first movie. I made that when I was, God, I made that when I was 24, 25, like back in like 1996, 97. Mm-hmm. And, I was I had a boyfriend in my twenties. I was with him from when I was twenty one to twenty nine, all my twenties. And he was from a small town called Victorville, uh, on the way to Las Vegas, between LA and Vegas. Mm-hmm. 
and I was fascinated by this by this by this little town that was basically a blur off the I fifteen if you if you didn't stop there, you know. Mm-hmm. And Tommy would take me to places in Victorville just to show it to me. And one night we were at this, this little bar that was literally on the highway. And we met this woman and had to tear sequins who was probably middle aged and she called herself we called her the sparkler because she was the sparkling. Oh. And um she told us that she had just gotten out of her you know, 35 years of marriage or 20, it was 25 years of marriage and she was out in the town looking for love and it just moved, moved me, the idea of this woman who was you know, starting over, you know, in the middle of nowhere, you know, in this sparkling gown. And I love that. That was the whole genesis of that movie, you know, so uh, Freddie Prince Jr. is in it and it's he and, and Jimmy Kennedy and this third guy from LA, they basically go on a road trip to Vegas to try to gamble and make some money to pay, pay their rent. And their car mm-hmm. breaks down in a small town, and they meet this woman um, who they call the Sparkler, and she basically sees them as a way out of her life, of her small town existence, and follows them to Vegas. And so it's mm-hmm. sort of a coming of age, coming of age movie between people of different classes, different genders, different you know life experiences, and um, you know they think she's sort of trying to get something out of them, but really she just wants she just wants you know human connection basically. And I think that's what everyone wants. And it seems to be a common theme in your movies when I really look at it, that there's mm-hmm. that wanting a connection, wanting to connect, wanting love, wanting to be um, looked at as this exalted person that's beautiful and, and on a pedestal. And it's the human condition, really. You really kind of touch them on, on the, in every single one of your movies when I look at it. Yeah, I mean, in Spark- in Sparkler, one of the three boys comes out in the movie. He happens to be gay and the small town woman sees that in him and accepts him and she accepts, you know, and it's, it's part of how they connect. So, you know, sometimes in the unlikeliest of places, you'll find somebody who, you know, understands you or who can find, find the truth in you, you know? And that's everything. Mm-hmm. Just feeling that human connection and understanding is so much, it's just much more important than anything. When you re- really look at the psychology of it, of feeling alone or isolated and then you find people that you connect with and that are aware of you and that see you, actually see you. And exactly. I think they're all beautiful. All of your films are beautiful that way. Also, they're very colorful and just visually stunning. And I enjoy that about them. But I hadn't really thought about that, that they all have sort of a similar message. Are you, were you aware that you do that? I mean, I think I, I, think I, I, I probably are not as aware, but I definitely, you know, love stories where people from different like, worlds come, come together. You know, I, I remember yeah. you know, growing up, I was always drawn to outsiders because I felt like an outsider myself. You know, I feel like I, mm-hmm. my parents are lovely, lovely people. I mean, they're fun, they're social, they're charming, but they're, you know, heterosexual. They never had to be anything different. And I think that limits their experience of seeing the world. You know, I've always been drawn to people of different races, sexualities, colors, genders. You know, and, I'm, and I think I'm more sensitive and empathetic to people who are different. You know, much more so than my parents. I think you are. I think you are. We were one of the first, we were one of the only black families where we lived other than the Jacksons. And it was, it was always nice to be welcomed. And this was when I was five years old and you were very right. little. <laughs> you were a baby. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting that you say that because I do recall always having a welcoming sense of feeling just kindness around you when we were little. And it, yeah. just, it, it wasn't always that way. So being different, you, you seem to find the beauty in being different and that that comes across in all of your films and in everything you write and in everything that you direct. It just is that beauty of the difference and difference being accepted. 
So I like that. I think it's really an important message and it's empowering for all the aspiring filmmakers out there, but it's also just empowering and inspiring for people, just humanity to come together mm-hmm. and to kind of look at mm-hmm. the, look at difference and find the similarities in there. I'm a humanity. So it's beautiful. I love the movies that you've made and I hope you continue to make them for years and years to come that have that kind of theme. It truly do. Thank now, you, talk yes. to a little bit about Lifetime. Yeah, I've been I've been fortunate to write. I've written, I wrote a um, <clears throat> a movie last year. I think it was the fourth Flowers in the Attic movie for Lifetime. It's called Seeds of Yesterday. Um, which okay, and Flowers of, of the Attic. Those are the books by V.C. Andrews. Is that what that right. is? That's right. Okay. They're kind of dark and morose and gothic and about you know family incest and like sort of like this curse, this curse being passed down to the generations. And they were a phenomenon in the 80s. And, they, and there were, you know, four books in a series or five books. So I oh, I read them. I read them. <laughs> Loved Flowers in the Attic. I remember that. Wow. So, the film was, so it's Heather Graham yesterday? and Ellen Burstyn. And, you know, they, they did really well for Lifetime. And I'm now I'm writing another film for Lifetime. I can't talk about it because it hasn't really been released in the press. But mm. it's a biopic. But you're writing another one for Lifetime for the network? Yeah, for the Lifetime Network, it's a biopic about a girl group that was very big in the '90s. But I can't say I don't want to kind of I don't want to say anything about it yet. But it's it's going to be spicy. No, no spoiler. But that's so exciting. That's so exciting. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. love Lifetime. I love it as a network because it is a network, correct? It is. Yeah, it is. And I think it's just so campy and fun. And it seems like it kind of owns it now. It started off being more serious, and now it kind of gets it. it it's in on it that it's campy. And I like the extremes that it goes to. I actually enjoy a Lifetime movie like nothing else. It's just so much fun. I love that you're doing that. And it's really fun because, you know, this, the big studios now, they're making just so many, like, superhero films and these huge, big-budgeted action tentpole movies. But the smaller, you know, indie, you know, the, you know, um, comedies don't get made as much. You know? No, they don't. They don't. And is that like what all those, be a comedy? Uh, like all, the next up, like all those great team films that we grew up on in the '80s and '90s. You know, we haven't had any of that anymore. You know, it's just a shame. No, we don't. We don't. Now, did those inspire you? All those '80s films, like uh, Sixteen Candles, Ferris yes, Bueller, they do. any of those? I mean, John Hughes. Is which a major one? Which one? Oh yeah, those are all John Hughes movies, aren't they? Which ones inspired you the most? Tell me a little bit about what you would watch and what you would feel. I really like like Pretty in Pink and Sixteen Candles. <laughs> so a Molly Ringwald thing you have going on there. Mm-hmm. Because I like, think we all did. Yeah, because I I think that when we go through life, like we have, a, we, we always will have a special fondness for the music and culture of the time period that we came of age in, and for you and I, it's the '80s, you know. And I think that yeah. that was a generation where those John Hughes films really crystallized the experience so beautifully, you know. He really did. He really did. He had a way with with the with the dialogue and the characters and the clothing as, as do you. So I can imagine that those inspired you. I can they imagine did. that. And they were, were very big reference points for, you know, GBS and Jawbreaker. I mean, Jawbreaker is very much considered a nineties teen film now, which is great. But when I made Jawbreaker, I, I, I really set out to make something that was timeless. That felt like it was, you know, I was, draw, I was drawing some films like Grease, which was sixties or some like, you know, rock and roll high school, which was seventies. And of course the John Hughes films. And then, but then I also mm. made Jawbreaker, feel like it could be, you know, any, any town USA, they have sort of a, a mythic element to it that didn't feel so like, you know, it's this town and, and this time period. I didn't want it to be specific like that. 
It's really, it does a good job of that. You did a good job of that because Pastimes at Ridgemont High is one of my favorite films. And sure, yeah. it's just that capturing the essence of high school. It doesn't have to be a Los Angeles high school or a Midwestern high school. Fast Times is just sort of the essence of being that age and discovering yourself and the people around you and the similarities and the differences. And I feel like you do that with Jawbreaker as well, that it, it, it is timeless to me. I think each of them are a time capsule unto themselves that really speaks to that time and brings you back with the memories and all of it. And they're also colorful. How do you achieve that effect of the, that pop of color, as I call it, that technicolor dream aspect of your film? How does, how does that happen? And how does that, how, how does that translate? Mm. How do you do that? I think it's just the way I see the world. You know, I like, I like seeing the world in a heightened way. I think it's really fun to imagine a world that's very stylized. And so, you know, it just requires a lot of attention to detail with the way that you style a movie and the costume design and the color schemes. I always like to sort of, you know, have a correlation between what the actor's wearing and the actual production design, like the set, you know, like the wallpaper, like, the, you know, the silverware that you, you know, the, the wall colors. You know, you just want it all to wow. achieve a slightly higher, you know, like, um, frequency. frequency. Um, Every little detail tightened. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, God, God is. You know, when, when it comes to making films, God is truly in the details. You know, I think that, and that's, and I think that's part of why you revisit movies, or why I revisit films, because you're kind of seeing something new every time you watch it. And that does happen when you're watching something that you haven't seen in years. For example, we're talking about the Breakfast Club and the John Hughes movies. When I go back and I watch those. I will catch something new every single time, just a different nuance or a different mm-hmm. little detail in the library, because most of it really takes place in a library, you know, in, in a school, but mostly in the library, they only escape a little bit. So it's, uh, it's one of those things where you catch something new each time. You're right. When you revisit it, you should, uh, yeah. you should have that. I love how it's film, that that the details. Like, it's supposed to be like detention, but somehow he, he, he managed to make detention look like a place you'd want to, you know, you'd want to be. I mean, that's, I mean, he, he truly had, had the Midas touch of making, you know, telling adolescent stories. He truly did. He truly did. He had a way of doing that, as do you. As do you. I hope you can continue to do you know, it for years and years to, to come. I actually got to meet Molly Ringwald at a, at a, at a party a couple of years ago, which was exciting for me. You did get to do that. Oh, how fun. How fun. Yeah. I remember mm-hmm. crashing Rebecca's party and running into you. I was bold at that age, bold and young, which is a dangerous combination. And I crashed a party and walked in and ran into you. <laughs> I was looking for the birthday cake to see whose it was. And it was Rebecca's birthday party from your movie Jawbreaker. And that was just so one of those funny. uncanny L.A. moments. That was, that, that was an L.A. story moment. It really was. So funny. Well, you so know, funny. I'm, actually, I'm actually a big fan of RuPaul's Drag Race. You know, RuPaul's a big hero of mine. Yes. And... And he's having this thing called DragCon, which is like a drag convention in L.A. on, on mm-hmm. May 7th and May 8th. And they're showing Jawbreaker there as part of the, um, the convention as, a, as sort of like a reunion screening of the movie. Because Jawbreaker, I'm there. Jawbreaker has been so influential over the years to the LGBT community, especially drag queens, because they, you know, they quote it. And they, they, I think they took a lot of glamour out of the film and, you know, female empowerment, you know. And, um, I love it. Rebecca Gayhart's going to going to be there with me, so <laughs> that's why I'm bringing. This Good. Up. Good, and RuPaul is just inspirational and amazing as well. And Drag Race is so much fun to watch. I've always thought it's like top, America's Next Top Model on steroids, but with a exactly. with, with a fuzzy feather boa around it. It's just it's fantastic, and I enjoy watching it well, you know, so I'm much as well. 
Yeah, I think drag queens are a um, celebration of women, really. It's a, all, all, you're, just, you're just completely putting women on a pedestal and, and, and absolutely taking, taking them to the next level with makeup and hair and fashion, and, and you're sort of like... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love the art form of drag. And it's funny because for Jawbreaker the Musical, one of the queens who won season five of Drag Race, uh, Jinx Monsoon, is playing the Carol Kane role um, in the musical. So I sort of like now that in 2016, you know, Jawbreaker is sort of embracing a modern, it's, it's current day aesthetic by having a drag queen play one of the roles. I love that. That really does make sense. And it kind of comes full circle. And I do love what you said, that it's a celebration of women. Because a lot of mm-hmm. people don't understand what drag is about. They don't, they don't get it. And I've always enjoyed it because it was other as well. Just like you say, mm-hmm. you're drawn to other. I just thought it was so interesting. Who are mm-hmm. these people? And became mm-hmm. fascinated with speaking to them and finding out more about them. And I'm in Los Angeles, so it's not um, unusual. And something that I could just learn more about. And I haven't really thought about it. It's a celebration of women. And that's exactly what that is. Exactly mm-hmm. what that is. Well, Darren, do you have a website or any information where people can learn more about you and your films and your work and your your entire body of work and what you're doing next? <laughs> well, I actually have a – I don't have a website, but I, I'm on Facebook, so it's just my name, Darren Stein, D-A-R-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. And so I, I'm on Facebook. I have a Twitter handle, which is my name, and I'm also on Instagram. It's Darren Stein. So, you know, they can find me on any of the social media platforms. Okay, fantastic. And I can be reached at – the real, uh, what is it? The real deal with Danielle at gmail.com. So that's the real deal with Danielle at gmail.com is my email address. Or you can go to my website to find me. And that's Danielle Delaney Counseling. That's C O U N S E L I N G dot com. And I'm always happy to, to have an exchange and an open exchange of ideas and conversation with listeners. So absolutely email me at the real deal with Danielle at gmail.com. Darren, it's been very inspiring and empowering to have you here today. I think it's empowering for the filmmakers that are not out being themselves yet, who would like to make some wonderful, beautiful films like you do. And it inspires people not to give up their daydream instead of their day job. Just don't give up your daydream. Always keep reaching and be who you are. I think being authentic is so important. And I think it's a really important message that you've given people today. So thank thank you. you again for being here. Thank you for having me. I I really enjoyed it. It's been a delight. So thanks a lot, and I'll see you again or speak with you all again next week on The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. Thanks for joining us this week. Be sure to catch The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney live every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We can't wait for you to see what's in store next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 